George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, Chapter 9. From Mandalay and Upper Burma, you can travel by train to Maimio, the principal hill station of the province on the edge of the Shan Plateau. It is rather a queer experience. You start off in the typical atmosphere of an eastern city, the scorching sunlight, the dusty palms, the smells of fish and spices and garlic, the squashy tropical fruits, the swarming dark-faced human beings. And because you are so used to it, you carry this atmosphere intact, so to speak, in your railway carriage. Mentally, you are still in Mandalay when the train stops at Maimio, 4,000 feet above sea level. But in stepping out of the carriage, you step into a different hemisphere. Suddenly, you are breathing cool, sweet air that might be that of England, and all around you are green grass, bracken, fir trees, and hill, women with pink cheeks selling baskets of strawberries. Getting back to Barcelona after three and a half months at the front reminded me of this. There was the same abrupt and startling change of atmosphere. In the train all the way to Barcelona, the atmosphere of the front persisted. The dirt, the noise, the discomfort, the ragged clothes, the feeling of privation, comradeship, and equality. The train, already full of militiamen when it left Barbastro, was invaded by more and more peasants at every station on the line. Peasants with bundles of vegetables, with terrified fowls, which they carried head downwards. With sacks, which looped and writhed all over the floor and were discovered to be full of live rabbits. Finally, with quite considerable flock of sheep, which were driven into the compartments and wedged into every empty space. The militiamen shouted revolutionary songs, which drowned the rattle of the train and kissed their hands or waved red and black handkerchiefs to every pretty girl along the line. Bottles of wine and anise, the filthy Aragonese liquor, <clears throat> traveled from hand to hand. With the Spanish goatskin water bottles, you can squirt a jet of wine right across a railway carriage into your friend's mouth, which saves a lot of trouble. Next to me, a black-eyed boy of fifteen was recounting sensational, and I do not doubt, completely untrue stories of his own exploits at the front, two old leather-faced peasants who listened open-mouthed. Presently, the peasants undid their bundles and gave us some sticky dark red wine. Everyone was profoundly happy, more happy than I can convey, but when the train had rolled through Sabadell and into Barcelona, we stepped into an atmosphere that was scarcely less alien and hostile to us and our kind than if this had been Paris or London. Everyone who has made two visits at intervals of months to Barcelona during the war has remarked upon the extraordinary changes that took place in it. And curiously enough, whether they went there first in August and again in January, or, like myself, first in December and again in April, the thing they said was always the same, that the revolutionary atmosphere had vanished. No doubt to anyone who had been there in August, when the blood was scarcely dry in the streets and militia were quartered in smart hotels, Barcelona in December would have seemed bourgeois. To me, fresh from England, it was liker to a worker city than anything I had conceived possible. Now, the tide had rolled back. Once again, it was an ordinary city, a little pinched and chipped by war, but with no outward sign of working-class predominance. The change in the aspect of the crowds was startling. The militia uniform and the blue overalls had almost disappeared. Everyone seemed to be wearing the smart summer suits in which Spanish tailors specialize. Fat, prosperous men, elegant women, and sleek cars were everywhere. It appeared that there were still no private cars. Nevertheless, anyone who was anyone seemed able to command a car. The officers of the new popular army, a type that had scarcely existed when I left Barcelona, swarmed in surprising numbers. The popular army was officered at the rate of one officer to ten men. A certain number of these officers had served in the militia and been brought back from the front for technical instruction, but the majority were young men who had gone to the school of war in preference to joining the militia. <clears throat> their relation to their men was not quite the same as in a bourgeois army, but there was a definite social difference expressed by the difference of pay and uniform. 
The men wore a kind of coarse brown overalls. The officers wore an elegant khaki uniform with a tight waist, like a British army officer's uniform, only a little more so. I do not suppose that more than one in twenty of them had yet been to the front, but all of them had automatic pistols strapped to their belts. We at the front could not get pistols for love or money. As we made our way up to the street, I noticed that people were staring at our dirty exteriors. Of course, like all men who have been slaughtered once in the line, we were a dreadful sight. I was conscious of looking like a scarecrow. My leather jacket was in tatters. My woolen cap had lost its shape and slid perpetually over one eye. My boots consisted of very little beyond splayed-out uppers. All of us were in more or less the same state. In addition, we were dirty and unshaven, so it was no wonder that the people stared. But it dismayed me a little, and brought it home to me that some queer things had been happening in the last three months. During the next few days, I discovered by innumerable signs that my first impression had not been wrong. A deep change had come over the town. There were two facts that were the keynote of all else. One was that the people, the civil population, had lost much of their interest in the war. The other was that the normal division of society into rich and poor, upper and lower class, was reasserting itself. The general indifference to the war was surprising and rather disgusting. It horrified people who came to Barcelona from Madrid or even from Valencia. Partly it was due to the remoteness of Barcelona from the actual fighting. <clears throat> I noticed the same thing months later in Tarragona, where the ordinary life of a smart seaside town was continuing almost undisturbed. But it was significant that all over Spain, voluntary enlistment had dwindled from about January onwards. In Catalonia in February, there had been a wave of enthusiasm over the first big drive for the popular army, but it had not led to any great increase in recruiting. The war was only six months old or thereabouts when the Spanish government had to resort to conscription, which would be natural in a foreign war, but seems anomalous in a civil war. Undoubtedly, it was bound up with the disappointment of the revolutionary hopes with which the war had started. The trade union members who formed themselves into militias and chased the fascists back into Zaragoza in the first few weeks of war had done so largely because they believed themselves to be fighting for working class control, but it was becoming more and more obvious that working class control was a lost cause, and the common people, especially the town proletariat, who have to fill the ranks in any war, civil or foreign, could not be blamed for a certain apathy. Nobody wanted to lose the war, but the majority were chiefly anxious for it to be over. You notice this wherever you went. Everywhere you met with the same perfunctory remark. This war. Terrible, isn't it? When is it going to end? Politically conscious people were far more aware of the internecine struggle between anarchists and communists than of the fight against Franco. To the mass of people, the shortage of food was the most important thing. The front had come to be thought of as a mythical, far-off place to which young men disappeared and either did not return or returned after three or four months with vast sums of money in their pockets. The militiamen usually received his back pay when he went on leave. Wounded men, even when they were hopping about on crutches, did not receive any special consideration. To be in the militia was no longer fashionable. The shops, always the barometers of public taste, showed this clearly. When I first reached Barcelona, the shops, poor and shabby though they were, had specialized in militiamen's equipment. Forage caps, zipper jackets, sand brown belts, hunting knives, water bottles, revolver holsters were displayed in every window. Now the shops were markedly smarter. But the war had been thrust into the background. As I discovered later when buying my kit before going back to the front, certain things that one badly needed at the front were very difficult to procure. Meanwhile, there was a going on a systematic propaganda against the party militias and in favor of the popular army. The position here was rather curious. 
Since February, the entire armed forces had theoretically been incorporated in the popular army, and the militias were on paper reconstructed along popular army lines with differential pay rates, gazetted ranks, etc., etc. The divisions were made up of mixed brigades, which were supposed to consist partly of popular army troops and partly of militia, but the only charges that had actually taken place were changes of name. The POUM troops, for instance, previously called the Lenin Division, were now known as the 29th Division. Until June, very few popular army troops reached the Aragon Front, and in consequence, the militias were able to retain their separate structure and their special character. But on every wall, the government agents had stenciled, We need a popular army. And over the radio and in the communist press, there was a ceaseless and sometimes very malignant jiving against the militia who were described as ill-trained, undisciplined, etc., etc. The popular army was always described as heroic. For much of this propaganda, you would have derived the impression that there was something disgraceful in having gone to the front voluntarily, and something praiseworthy in waiting to be conscripted. For the time being, however, the militias were holding the line while the popular army was training in the rear, and this fact had to be advertised as little as possible. Drafts of militia returning to the front were no longer marched through the streets with drums beating and flags flying. They were smuggled away by train or lorry at five o'clock in the morning. A few drafts of the popular army were now beginning to leave for the front, and these, as before, were marched ceremoniously through the streets, but even they, owing to the general waning of interest in the war, met with comparatively little enthusiasm. The fact that the militia troops were also, on paper, popular army troops was skillfully used in the press propaganda. Any credit that happened to be going was automatically handed to the popular army while all blame was reserved for the militias. It sometimes happened that the same troops were praised in one capacity and blamed in another. But besides all this, there was the startling change in the social atmosphere, a thing difficult to conceive unless you've actually experienced it. When I first reached Barcelona, I had thought of a town where class distinctions and great differences of wealth hardly existed. Certainly that was what it looked like. Smart clothes were an abnormality. Nobody cringed or took tips. Waiters and flower women and bootblacks looked you in the eye and called you comrade. I had not grasped that this was mainly a mixture of hope and camouflage. The working class believed in a revolution that had been begun but never consolidated. The bourgeoisie were scared and temporarily disguising themselves as workers. In the first months of revolution, there must have been many thousands of people who deliberately put on overalls and shouted revolutionary slogans as a way of saving their skins. Now things were returning to normal. The smart restaurants and hotels were full of rich people wolfing expensive meals, while for the working class population, food prices had jumped enormously without any corresponding rise in wages. Apart from the expensiveness of everything, there were recurrent shortages of this and that, which of course always hit the poor rather than the rich. The restaurants and hotels seemed to have little difficulty in getting whatever they wanted, but in the working-class quarters, the queues for bread, olive oil, and other necessities were hundreds of yards long. Previously in Barcelona, I had been struck by the absence of beggars. Now there are quantities of them. Outside the delicatessen shop around the top of the Ramblas, gangs of barefooted children were always waiting to swarm around anyone who came out and clamor for scraps of food. The revolutionary forms of speech were dropping out of use. Strangers seldom addressed you as tu and camarada nowadays. It was usually senor and usted. Buenos dias was beginning to replace salud. The waiters were back in their boiled shirts, and the shop walkers were cringing in the familiar manner. My wife and I went into a hosiery shop in the Rambles to buy some stockings. The shopman bowed and rubbed his hands, as they do not do even in England nowadays, though they used to do it twenty or thirty years ago. 
In a furtive, indirect way, the practice of tipping was coming back. The workers' patrols had been ordered to dissolve, and the pre-war police forces were back on the streets. One result of this was that the cabaret show and high-class brothels, many of which had been closed by workers' patrols, had promptly reopened. The workers' patrols are said to have closed 75% of the brothels. A small but significant instance of the way in which everything was now oriented in favor of the wealthier classes could be seen in the tobacco shortage. For the mass of the people, the shortage of tobacco was so desperate that cigarettes filled with sliced licorice root were being sold in the streets. I tried some of these once. A lot of people tried them once. Franco held the canaries while the Spanish tobacco was grown. Consequently, the only stocks of tobacco left on the government side were those that had been in existence before the war. These were running so low that the tobacconist shops only opened once a week. After waiting for a couple hours in a queue, you might, if you were lucky, get a three-quarter ounce packet of tobacco. Theoretically, the government would not allow tobacco to be purchased from abroad because this meant reducing the gold reserves, which had to be kept for arms and other necessities. Actually, there was a steady supply of smuggled foreign cigarettes of the more expensive kinds, lucky strikes and so forth, which gave a grand opportunity for profiteering. You could buy the smuggled cigarettes openly in the smart hotels and hardly less openly in the streets, provided that you could pay ten pesetas, a militiaman's daily wage, for a packet. The smuggling was for the benefit of wealthy people and was therefore connived at. If you had enough money, there was nothing that you could not get in any quantity, with the possible exception of bread, which was rationed fairly strictly. This open contrast of wealth and poverty would have been impossible a few months earlier when the working class still were or seemed to be in control. But it would not be fair to attribute it solely to the shift of political power. Partly it was a result of the safety of life in Barcelona, where there was little to remind one of the war except an occasional air raid. Everyone who had been in Madrid said that it was completely different there. In Madrid, the common danger forced people of almost all kinds into some sense of comradeship. A fat man eating quails while children are begging for bread is a disgusting sight, but you are less likely to see it when, when, when you are within the sound of the guns. A day or two after the street fighting, I remember passing through one of the fashionable streets and coming upon a confectioner's shop with a window full of pastries and bonbons of the most elegant kinds at staggering prices. It was at the... It was the kind of shop that you see in Bond Street or the Rue de la Paix, and I remember feeling a vague horror and amazement that money could still be wasted upon such things in a hungry, war-stricken country. But God forbid that I should pretend to any personal superiority. After months of discomfort, I had a ravenous desire for decent food and wine, cocktails, American cigarettes, and so forth, and I admit to having wallowed in every luxury that I had money to buy. During the first week before the street fighting began, I had several preoccupations which interacted upon one another in a curious way. In the first place, as I have said, I was busy making myself as comfortable as I could. Secondly, thanks to overeating and overdrinking, I was slightly out of health all that week. I would feel a little unwell, go to bed for half a day, get up and eat another excessive meal, and then feel ill again. At the same time, I was making secret nego negotiations to buy a revolver. I badly wanted a revolver, and trench fighting more, much more useful than a rifle and they were very difficult to get a hold of. The government issued them to policemen and popular army officers, but refused to issue, the, issue them to the militia. He had to buy them illegally from the secret stores of the anarchists. After a lot of fuss and nuisance, an anarchist friend managed to procure me a tiny 26mm automatic pistol, a wretched weapon, useless at more than five yards, but better than nothing. And besides all this, I was making preliminary arrangements to leave the POUM militia and enter some other unit that would ensure my being sent to the Madrid front. I told everyone for a long time past that I was going to leave the POUM. 
As far as my purely personal preferences went, I would have liked to join the anarchists. If one became a member of the CMT, it was possible to enter the FAI militia, but I was told that the FAI were likelier to send me to Teruel than to Madrid. If I wanted to go to Madrid, I must join the international column, which meant getting a recommendation from a member of the Communist Party. I sought out a communist friend, attached to the Spanish medical aid, and explained my case to him. He seemed very anxious to recruit me, and asked me if possible to persuade some of the other ILP Englishmen to come with me. If I had been in better health, I probably should have agreed there and then. It is hard to say now what difference this would have made. Quite possibly, I, I should have been sent to Albacete before the Barcelona fighting started, in which case, not having seen the fighting at close quarters, I might have accepted the official version of it as truthful. On the other hand, if I had been in Barcelona during the fighting under communist orders, but still with a sense of personal loyalty to my comrades in the POUM, my position would have been impossible. But I had another week's leave due to me, and I was very anxious to get my health back before returning to the line. Also, the kind of detail that is always deciding one's destiny, I had to wait while the bootmakers made me a new pair of marching boots. The entire Spanish army had failed to produce a pair of boots big enough to fit me. I told my communist friend that I would like to make a definite arrangements later. Meanwhile, I wanted a rest. I even had a notion that we, my wife and I, might go to the seaside for two or three days. <laughs> what an idea! Political atmosphere ought to have warned me that there was not the kind of thing that one could do nowadays. For under the surface aspect of the town, under the luxury and growing poverty, under the seeming gaiety of the streets, with their flower stalls, their many-colored flags, their propaganda posters, and thronging crowds, there was an unmistakable and horrible feeling of political rivalry and hatred. People of all shades of opinion were saying forebodingly, There's going to be trouble before long. The danger was quite simple and intelligible. It was the antagonism between those who wished the revolution to go forward and those who wished to check or prevent it ultimately between anarchists and communists. Politically, there was now no power in Catalonia except the PSUC and their liberal, liberal allies. But over against this, there was the uncertain strength of the CNT, less well-armed and less sure of what they wanted than their adversaries, but powerful because of their numbers and their predominance in various key industries. Given this alignment of forces, there was bound to be trouble. From the point of view of the PSUC controlled general light, the first necessity to make their position secure was to get the weapons out of the CNT workers' hands. As I have pointed out earlier, the move to break up the party militias was at bottom a maneuver toward this end. At the same time, the pre-war armed police forces, civil guards, and so forth had been brought back into use and were being heavily reinforced and armed. This could mean only one thing. The civil guards in particular were a gendarmerie of the ordinary continental type who for nearly a century past had acted as the bodyguards of the possessing class. Meanwhile, a decree had been issued that all arms held by private persons were to be surrendered. Naturally, this order had not been obeyed. It was clear that the anarchist weapons could only be taken from them by force. Throughout this time, there were rumors, always vague and contradictory owing to newspaper censorship, of minor clashes that were occurring all over Catalonia. In various places, the armed police forces had made attacks on anarchist strongholds. At Puig Cerda, on the French frontier, a band of carabineros were sent to seize the customs office, previously controlled by anarchists, and Antonio Martin, a well-known anarchist, was killed. Similar incidents had occurred at Figueras, and I think at Tarragona. In Barcelona, there had been a series of more or less unofficial brawls in the working-class suburbs. CNT and UGT members had been murdering one another for some time past, on several occasions, the murders were followed by huge, provocative funerals, which were quite deliberately intended to stir up political hatred. 
A short time earlier, the CNT member had been murdered, and the CNT had turned out in hundreds of thousands to follow the cortege. At the end of April, just after I got back to Barcelona, Roldan, a prominent member of the UGT, was murdered, presumably by someone in the CNT. The government ordered all shops to close and staged an enormous funeral procession largely of popular army troops, which took two hours to pass a given point. From the hotel window, I watched it without enthusiasm. It was obvious that this so-called funeral was merely a display of strength. A little more of this kind of thing, and there might be bloodshed. The same night, my wife and I were, were woken by a fusillade of shots from the Plaza de Catalunya, a hundred or two hundred yards away. We learned the next day it was a C&T man being bumped off, presumably by someone in the UGT. It was, of course, distinctly possible that all these murders were committed by Agent Provocateur. One can gauge the attitude of the foreign capitalist press toward the communist anarchist feud by the fact that Roldan's murder was given wide publicity while the answering murder was carefully unmentioned. The first of May was approaching, and there was talk of a monster demonstration in which both the CNT and UGT were to take part. The CNT leaders, more moderate than many of their followers, had long been working for a reconciliation with the UGT. Indeed, the keynote of their policy was to try and form two blocks of unions into one huge coalition. The idea was that the CNT and UGT should march together and display their solidarity, but at the last moment the demonstration was called off. It was perfectly clear that it would lead only to rioting, so nothing happened on May 1st. It was a queer state of affairs. Barcelona, the so-called revolutionary city, was probably the only city in non-fascist Europe that had no celebrations that day. But I admit, I was rather relieved. The ILP, ILP contingent was expected to march in the POUM section of the procession, and everyone expected trouble. The last thing I wished for was to be mar mixed up in some meaningless street fight. To be marching up the street behind red flags, inscribed with elevating slogans, and then to be bumped off from an upper window by some total stranger with a submachine gun. That, that is not my idea of a useful way to die.